Greetings again, everyone. I am not the leader of a cult. This is not a cult. And I do not urge anyone to ascend to the next level unless I'm with them on an elevator in a department store. A man named Applewhite recently caused 39 people in San Diego to commit methodical mass suicide. By now you know all about that because it's been on the front cover of the major weekly news magazines and I was able to mention it in one of my television programs and it was worldwide news. It was all over the world. There had been earlier mass suicides in Switzerland and also up in Canada where people who are following weird outlandish cult leaders who have all kinds of nonsensical ideas based upon the false doctrine of the immortality of the soul with a lot of this New Age religion mixed in, have led people to their deaths. It's a very ghastly and a very macabre thing when you think about it. And I want to explain to you a little bit about that today, and again, to issue a disclaimer, as I did some years ago when I preached a sermon entitled, Just One Man, which I announced on television. And it had to do with men the likes of Attila the Hun, or Adolf Hitler, or Saddam Hussein, and how an impassioned, charismatic leader can somehow cause the will of an entire nation to vicariously be bent to his own whims and his own selfish, egocentric desires and lead people over the brink into, in a sense, national suicide, which is exactly what occurred eventually in Germany. And literally millions of people died. Over 30 million in Russia alone. Six million Jews gassed, burnt, starved, beaten, shot, and hung during World War II in the concentration camps of places like Maidanach and Baden-Belsen and Auschwitz and Dachau and all the other infamous places of which you've heard so many times. I spoke then about how one man can exert influence upon the minds of other human beings if they are willing to give into his mind their personal sovereignty and give up their own decision-making process and allow their emotions to be manipulated by some kind of a dynamic leader. Now, when I saw the protruding eyes and the weird look on this man on the cover of Time and Newsweek magazine a couple of weeks ago, I held up the magazine in the television studio and I said, I wouldn't follow that guy across the street. Well, looks aren't everything. I, I cannot really explain it. When I see some of these people on television, when I see some of the leaders of the past, such as Jim Jones, as I see that, that people actually made my father into kind of a god, and one woman told my sister, if Herbert W. Armstrong told me to jump out of a four-story window, I would do it. My sister was aghast. She said, certainly you don't mean that. Well, my father never would have told her to do that, of course, because my father never believed in any kind of self-destruction at all, but it illustrated a point. And I have also preached a number of sermons in which I have said, guard the doors of your mind, that the most precious possession you have where you live is not in your knuckles or your elbow or your kneecap, but inside the frontal lobes of your brain, where your conscience and your decision-making capability lies or your volition, all of your personality, what makes you, you, is there in the frontal lobes, not back in the cerebral cortex, not back in the portion of your brain that has to do with your 
motor ability or your athletic ability or hand-eye coordination or your memory, but it has to do with your personality. Don't ever give that into somebody else's hands. Keep it sovereign for yourself. For so many years I have said, don't follow me. Follow Jesus Christ. I have said on the radio and over television for over 42 years, don't believe me, believe the Bible. If I tell you what is in your Bible and you research it for yourself, if I make statements about history or archaeology or the Bible, then look it up, prove it to yourself. The Bible says, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, and then you will know that your faith rests on your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ and your own belief in the Word of God. And you know that you're not being led in some other direction that you shouldn't go. You know, those poor people out there, I say poor people, uh, you look at them, many of them were interviewed prior to their deaths, and from that time we've seen a lot of interviews on television of their families and other people, including one man who got out of the cult just before the mass suicide occurred, and he looked a little weird if you saw the television interview that I did. He actually said when they left, he thinks they went there. The cult leader told those people, go outside at night and look up at the Hale-Bopp Comet and you will see where you're going to go. Well, I've seen the Hale-Bopp Comet many times. I hope all of you had it, uh, have. It's a real spectacle, and perhaps if the skies are clear, you can still see it. It's fading a little bit now, but it has been very, very brilliant, and I've seen it many times. And I can tell you, because I've looked at it with my binoculars, there isn't any mothership following along in its wake. But people think that there are things like motherships who land, which land in people's backyards, which beams them up. And they sit down and have a coffee with them. Or they go somewhere, then they come back, then they write a book. And the only people who can say, no, you didn't, you're a liar, is anybody who decides to say so because there's no way they can prove it. You see, it's supposed to be a one-way street. Allegedly, human beings can get in touch with them but they never come to appear on Larry King Live or be interviewed by Peter Jennings. And while they beam people up for a coffee, they never go to the White House for a coffee. I have a question. When these people had their driver's licenses in their shirt pockets, and every single one of them did, even a very good friend of ours that is not a member of this church who does believe in another life and believes in having had a previous life, just ridicule the concept because even she knows that in her belief it is a spiritual transition into a spirit world, and spirits, she doesn't think, and she's right, need driver's licenses. And she was ridiculing the fact that they packed their bags. Why would you pack physical clothing when you're talking about departing in a spiritual sense as a spirit? Do souls wear clothes. Now, I don't want you to think about the other part of that question because it's too embarrassing. But think about it for just a moment in case you've never thought about it before. How do souls appear to each other? Valid question, isn't it? I mean, if the entirety of nominal fundamental Christianity is founded on one of the basic building blocks of the, con of the concept of the immortality of the soul, do souls smell? Do they touch? Do they feel? Do they taste? Do they enjoy coffee in the morning and a bird singing? Do they enjoy a good New York cut steak and a baked potato and green beans almadine? 
What do souls do? Do they zip about in UFOs? Well, if that man had said, let me show you where you're going, and had gotten a van or a bus and gone down to the county coroner's office, maybe gone to the morgue and pulled out a slab, or maybe gone to a mortician and looked inside the silk pink lining of a coffin, or maybe showed them a six-foot hole in the ground, then they would have gotten an idea about where they were going to go. Now, where are their driver's licenses today? Well, they're in the hands of San Diego Police Department, and assumedly, once all of the investigative uh, routine is over, they'll be returned to their nearest loved ones. You remember Jim Jones. And, of course, in television, they showed a lot of the same ghastly pictures that we saw almost 20 years ago now when he led over 900 people to a grisly death of drinking poison in a macabre ritual down in the Guyana jungle after they had assassinated a member of the House of Representatives of the United States who had gone down there to investigate complaints by former cult members about the activities of this group. Many cultic leaders either themselves commit suicide and talk their followers into it, or in many cases a cult leader will get himself killed, and sometimes the people who follow him will get themselves killed or grievously hurt financially as well as sometimes physically. There are a lot of examples about that, not only in history. Today, in this civilization of ours, the idea of belonging to a clique or a group or a gang, there are gangs all over the United States. There are the Crips and the Bloods. There is the Mafia. There's the Chinese Mafia. There's the Japanese Yakuza. And they are deep in have to do with the Colombian cartels and the Mexican drug runners. It reaches all the way up into the highest levels of the Mexican government and the Mexican police, and the Mexican military, and they're all on the take down there. A lot of articles have been written about it. And people want to gather together because paranoia reigns supreme. And right here in East Texas, all around, within a few miles of us, there are people who belong to various militia groups. There are people who belong to Satanist groups. And there are people who belong to all kinds of different religious groups. We are such a group. We belong to a religious organization which you can read in other religious publications labeled as a cult. There was a book years ago. It was called The Kingdom of the Cults. I forget the name of the author, but it listed my father and along with him, me. And yet here all of my adult life I have urged people don't ever follow a cult or be a part of a cult. When we organized the Church of God back in 1978, we drew up in the charter the acknowledgment that we are only a part of the body of Christ, that we had no remote claim of being able to embody in some corporate document membership of the totality of the Church of God. In our founding documents, it admits that the Church of God, with Jesus Christ as the living head, is a living spiritual organism and is made up of individual called-out members here and there, some of whom, from time to time, may bind themselves together to perform a particular work, which is true in our case, but who do not claim at all to represent all of the Church of God. We've always said we are a part of the Church of God, and these various other people who are also sincere, Bible-believing Christian people who have been converted and baptized and believe in God and Jesus Christ as their personal Savior are also members of the Church of God. You can really do no more 
that I have tried to do to remove myself from the projection of the image of a cult leader. But in spite of all of that, I am still labeled as such by those who either deliberately tell falsehoods or they just don't really correctly understand the truth and the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we preach and in which I believe with all of my soul. Teenage suicide is at an all-time high today. Mass suicide is not a new thing. All of you remember probably seeing the documentaries of Okinawan civilians jumping off the cliffs. And some of you World War II veterans remember that in the Pacific at the closing months of World War II when the United States troops were about to occupy the entirety of the island of Okinawa. A lot of the civilians had believed the lies the Japanese told about what terrible brutes we are. You know, the Hebrew word goy is the nation or a Gentile, and it's strange that even in the Japanese, the word gai means stranger. And the word jinn you're familiar with in Arabic as well as Hebrew, it has to do with jinni or genie or the genie in the bottle. It means a devil or a spirit. So in Japanese, the word gaijin is a foreign devil. And they had told the citizens and their soldiers that they would be tortured, and the worst thing in the world would be to fall into the hands of the gaijin or the foreign devil. So here were mothers with babies in arms that rushed to those precipitous cliffs and just leapt off and killed themselves. And it broke the hearts of Americans watching. They were sobbing. They were calling out on bullhorns. They had Japanese interpreters. Please don't do that. So people can be driven to commit suicide by fear, by paranoia, by a false belief in a in ascending to a different level by all kinds of messed up spiritual ideas and attitudes, and they can follow leaders to their death. Let's turn to one of the first examples of a cult leader in the Bible. He was also a conspirator who was trying to overthrow the government. In the 16th chapter of Numbers, you read about Korah. Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the sons of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, rose up before Moses, was certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the congregation, of the assembly, famous in the congregation. Now, this didn't happen in ten minutes. Moses didn't say, okay, everybody, are you ready? Let's go. I mean, this was a conspiracy that had to develop over a period of weeks, if not months. Who knows how long it took, how many hundreds of hours of earnest private conversations off in various places for these people to finally get to the point where they say, we're going to go tomorrow and we're going to go confront Moses. So they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said, you take too much upon you. Well, if you were to read the previous chapters, you can refresh your memory about how when the spies came back after 40 days of searching out the promised land and they gave this evil report about the men of Anak, and the children began to weep and murmur and complain and say, we might as well have died in Egypt or we may as well have died in the wilderness. Now you're going to get us killed by these people in the land. And they turned back and God proposed to just wipe them out. Moses prayed to God heartbrokenly. He said, don't let the Egyptians and everybody else say that they don't even have a powerful God, that their God wasn't able to deliver them. And he reasoned with God and he appealed to God. You know that Moses, when he was called, said, Who am I? I can't do this. I stutter. I can't talk very well. And so God said, Aaron will be your spokesman. I'll put the words in his mouth. Moses didn't want his calling. Time and again, he said, How can I lead such a great people? He did not appoint himself, but he was accused of appointing himself. 
You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy. We're just as good as you are. Everybody's at your level. This was merely the same tired old human excuse of people who familiarity breeds contempt and people just did not really know that God was behind Moses, even though they should have. They had a daily reminder in a column of smoke by day and a hire of fire over the tabernacle every night and of great miracles that they had seen. But I guess human beings can grow accustomed to practically anything. And over a period of time, they began to rebel. And every one of them is holy, and the eternal is among them. Wherefore, then lift you up yourselves, total false charge. Never happened. Not in one moment of Moses' life did he ever try to do such a thing. Above the congregation of the eternal. When Moses heard it, he fell upon his face, because he thought, surely God's going to wipe us all out right here. He spoke unto Korah, unto the company, saying, Even tomorrow the eternal will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he has chosen will he cause to come near unto him. So he said, Take you censors, Korah, and all of his company. And this would have been a priestly rite, and actually they weren't authorized to do so. And put fire therein. Notice some of them were the sons of Reuben, and they were not of the priests. And incense, and before the eternal tomorrow it shall be that the man whom the eternal or the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. You take too much upon you. He used the very same Hebrew phrase and just flung it right back in their teeth. No, you're the one who takes too much upon you, you sons of Levi. Moses said unto Korah, Here, I pray you, you sons of Levi, seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the eternal and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. And he has brought you near to him and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee, and you seek the priesthood also, for which cause both you and all your company that are gathered together against the Eternal. And what is Aaron that you're murmuring against him? What has he done? Who is he? Why should you be angry at Aaron? Well, you know what happened. He told them to do so, and they did it. They took their censers, verse 18. They gathered, verse 19, at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the glory of the Eternal appeared unto all of those people. And he spoke to Moses. Now, it says, Jesus himself said, You've neither seen his face nor heard his voice at any time. So always when the Bible says that the J-H-V-H, Jehovah, or Yahweh, spoke unto Moses and Aaron, it was by an angelic messenger. I don't really know if it means that it was audible, but I assume that it was because it certainly was both at the burning bush and at the mount. It may have been audible, may have been by some other method. Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces, just prostrate on the ground, and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh. Interesting language, isn't it? The spirits of all flesh. Yes, the Bible says we have a human spirit. It says there is a spirit in man, and that his spirit witnesseth with our spirit that we are the children of God. And into thy hands I commend my spirit and so on, when someone dies. The world calls it a soul, and they think it is conscious apart from the body, but it is not conscious apart from the body. It only has consciousness in connection with the human brain. And God is going to resurrect the body and the spirit, and, of course, we're going to be in God's kingdom. And Jesus Christ, when he came back, even though he was able to walk right through solid walls and walk out of that rock-hewn tomb, 
was able to so materialize before the disciples and before doubting Thomas that he was able to show him the wounds. So that answers the question. And also he was wearing garments when he came back before them. So God has all power and he can do that. But a disembodied, floating uh, spiritual essence of some kind that hovers around at the funeral when the body is in a coffin is just absolutely not uh, preached or taught in the Bible at all. O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be wroth with all the congregation? Well, then they told them to get up from the tabernacles of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and we know what happened. They told them to go away from them. Verse 26, these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in their sins. And then he said in verse 29, If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Eternal has not sent me. But if the Eternal make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quickly into the pit, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Eternal. The word pit is Sheol, and it's the very same word used as the grave everywhere in the Old Testament. And an earthquake occurred. A great sinkhole or a crevasse opened up underneath the feet of those families that had been in that conspiracy and swallowed them all up. It doesn't say how many, but there were men, women, and children here, and their animals, and their tents, and it was as if they had never been. All of their possessions and all of those families disappeared, the earth closed over them, and they were gone. Notice what these people said. Well, a fire came out. Verse 35, and consumed the 250 men that had offered incense. In the meantime, everybody that was a part of the conspiracy and all their families were gone. Verse 41, an incredible scripture. But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. These same people had seen the glory of the Eternal appear above the tabernacle. Maybe they even heard a big rumbling sound as the voice spoke to Moses. They saw the most incredible miracle you can imagine, the earth opening up and heard the screams of people tumbling down, saw the earth as it reeled to and fro, closed, no doubt a big cloud of dust in the air, and it was as if those people had never been. Now, that's handing Moses and Aaron a lot of power, isn't it, for them to say, in their rebellious spirit, even following that tremendous demonstration of God's strength, you killed all those innocent people. That is one of the most difficult to understand of the hard-heartedness of human beings once they set their jaw and they make up their mind which way they're going to go. And once their emotions get involved, and they decided that Moses and Aaron are the bad guys, and all these other people are the good guys, they drew the line in the sand, they decided which way they were going to go, and even great miracles didn't change their mind. They're still rebellious. Well, Moses, what is his attitude, and Aaron? Desperately solicitous toward the well-being of the people didn't want them to suffer. He said, Aaron, quick, run out there with a censer and get fire and stand between the ones who were in this spirit and attitude and the ones who were in the right attitude. And he did, and he ran out there. And there was a terrible plague that began sweeping through the people. And they knew who the ones who were conspirators and the ones who were against Moses and Aaron were. 
And you read in the ensuing verses that the wrath of God had begun. There was a plague, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. In verse 49, there died 14,700, far more than 15,000, counting the 250, and all of the families of Korah and the other people with him that aren't really counted here. So far more than 15,000 sympathizers with that leader, one man and some other men that he gathered around him, who were men of renown, that means renamed, it means fame, known people in the congregation. And they were the good guys. They all had a reputation. Why, he'll help you, he'll do anything, he'll take up and put down your tent, and he'll go out and gather food for you, and he's really a good guy. They had great aplomb and, and great reputations, and they were able to be leaders of the people because they had the magnetism, they had the charisma. Look what it cost the people who followed them. It cost them everything. They just followed the wrong man. They should never have followed any man, but followed God. There were the symbols of God. There was the great pyre, a fire they could go out, and they'd seen it every single night over the tabernacle. A great black cloud right over the tabernacle every day. They saw the miracle of the manna, the miracle of the throwing of the branch into the waters at Meribah, the miracles that fed them and clothed them and caused their shoes never to wear out in 40 solid years. These people saw miracle after miracle. Now they see miracles in the case of God destroying people who were rebelling against him, and it still didn't really break that cast-iron, hard human heart that had made up its mind in advance which way it was going to go. Take a look at Acts 5.34. Some other conspirators, you don't really think about these people, but when Gamaliel was warning the Jewish leadership that they had better be very careful on the way that they handled Peter and the apostles, they had already thrown them in the clank, they had beaten them, and they were telling them that they were going to do a lot worse than that. When Gamaliel stood up, Acts 5.34 and verse... Yeah, verse 34 in Acts 5. A doctor of the law had in reputation among all the people and commanded the apostles to be put forth a little space and said, You men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as concerning these men. For before these days rode up Judas. And I think that means like grace of God. But Judas must have been quite a guy. He must have been quite a magnetic, charming personality. Boasting himself to be somebody. Or is that taking upon himself all kinds of reputation and... A lot of people come up with the idea. I've had people call me and ask me, well, is your father, do you think your father was the Elijah who was to come? I just answered that on the telephone the day before yesterday. I've answered it in letters. There was a person that called me and asked me that on the telephone two days ago. And I've said, no, I do not. Absolutely not. Beware of people who think they can find themselves mentioned personally in this ancient book. Beware of those people. There was a young student, I won't name him, he later on became a doctor, allegedly, and a person that had a great deal to do with doctrinal formulas and prophetic scenarios in the parent church. But he alleged at one time from the pulpit, clear up in Belknap Springs, while I was in the Navy, that my father was the Elijah who was to come. And my father went to him and rebuked him sternly and said he was not and he didn't make any such a claim. Now, maybe later on, in later years, if my dad allowed people to think that, maybe he didn't disclaim it as much as he should have. But I do remember 
distinctly that he rebuked that young man and said he was not. You know, Jesus Christ said, when they said about Elijah, they asked him about Elijah, and Jesus said, if you will receive it, Elijah is come already, and referred to John the Baptist, didn't he? Now, you know, a lot of people will draw another analogy. Well, that analogy's gone, dead and buried, isn't it? Because if my dad was Elijah, and Elijah had a successor when he took the mantle, I mean, when Elisha came along, took the mantle, and and uh, struck it on the ground and opened up the water and walked across a dry shot and said, where is the God of Elijah? And he put, as it said, the double portion of God's Spirit on Elisha. Well, then the analogy, if you follow along, is that the person who followed my father had to be Elisha. Well, who follows Elisha? Super Elisha or little Elisha? Because whoever they think Elisha was, they're both dead. So beware of anybody who, A, A, listen, thinks he or she has a special relationship with God that you don't have. Nonsense! Beware of such a person. You can have the most special relationship with God that any other human being can have. And you can have that relationship any day, anywhere, at home, in your closet, your bathroom, your kitchen, your living room. You can have it driving down the road. You can have it sitting there in your seat. You can have it on the job doing whatever you're doing. You can have a special relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, your high priest and your Savior, and you need no other. You don't need a human conduit. You have your own sovereign ability to go directly through Christ to God the Father without ever saying anything or asking anybody anything. And just beware of anybody who will come along with a lot of doctrinal ideas and writing a bunch of junk and be all messed up about, well, extraterrestrial beings or UFOs or visions or voices or uh, maybe dietary strictures or certain things involving dress and clothing and hairstyles, all kinds of things they want to impose upon you to interfere with your lifestyle because they're supposedly a person who is somebody. Well, Judas had boasted himself to be somebody to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves. A pretty good group. 400. It's a lot bigger than the group here today, isn't it? And these men were running around the nation doing whatever. Who was slain? He doesn't say who killed him, but obviously the authorities, maybe the Romans, maybe the Jews. I don't know. But Judas got himself killed. Now, what happened to his followers? As many as obeyed him, by the way, the word obeyed has a note in my margin, and it is identical in the Greek. Belief and obey is interchangeable in the Greek word. And it says, believed in my margin. As many as believed him. They bought into it. Well, he got himself killed. They were scattered, and it came to nothing. That's a cult leader there. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing. Probably he mentions that because it might have been a tax revolt, don't you think? And, of course, I can see where in the United States of America, when you, you look at some of the taxes and you listen to all the shenanigans going on and some of the abuses of the IRS and some of the things that they've done to different families, I can see where every now and then some people try to rebel against the government and all of that. But when it's carried to such an extreme as apparently the alleged Oklahoma City bombers did, where they think they're going to make a statement, the government, quote-unquote, whoever they are, did what they did down in Waco. 
and I don't like them, these people think, so I'm going to go kill a whole bunch of hundreds of innocent people, including women and precious little children, and just blow them into maimed human flesh because I am going to make a statement. I'll tell you, I wish that the kind of swift justice that God is going to put in place during the millennium were here right now. Because the people, well, first of all, the bomb would blow up in their face. If they were trying to do it, God would just wait, wait until it's big enough, you know, and then just trigger it. And that'd be the end of them. That'd be probably be one method to do it if it's not too quick. But at least it would get rid of a lot of would-be bombers. But if anybody would do something like that, they'd be put to death very, very quickly. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him, he also perished and all... As many as believed him or obeyed him, either one, were dispersed. And so Gamaliel said, look, refrain from these men. And he allowed, he didn't believe, by the way. You can see that from his life, other aspects of where Gamaliel is mentioned. And he was Paul's teacher, Saul's teacher. You know that he was giving them that. He was allowing them to think, well, these guys are just cult leaders and they'll come to nothing. Don't worry about them. Don't yourselves get involved and get crossways with them. And he went on to say, if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest haply you be found even to fight against God. There is another very famous biblical cult leader. We've read about him before, back in 3 John, the little 14-verse letter from John to the well-beloved Gaius. He said in the ninth verse, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Allow me to say something, if I might, by reminding you of 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, and what the Apostle Paul went through when he said there were people who were this clique and that schism and that division and that party spirit. And they were, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ, I'm of somebody else. And he went on to disclaim all of that. I did, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you people. Who am I? Don't follow me. You know, and, and don't have a party spirit and don't be the member of a clique. I just want to say something in passing and to throw it in for what it's worth. We have a number of other men who share this pulpit, thank God, thank God for them and for their sincerity and their dedication and their ability and for the fact that they are up here and able to preach and to teach and to speak to you. But you know, there are some people here and there around the country that will not listen to them. Not many, but here and there, there are a few. They only want to listen to me. Now, what should I do about that? Be flattered? I'm sorry. I appreciate deeply the fact that people recognize that God Almighty gave me a gift of speaking and of teaching, and I do want to use that gift to His honor and His glory. But I want to make a point. Most all the time, I think I'm with one exception, maybe in the last year and a half or so, I don't know. If one of these other men are up here speaking in the pulpit, where do you think I am? I'm right out there in the congregation listening to them. Now, having said that, if people along the way will realize that I'm listening to them, maybe they won't be too quick to say, well, I'd, I'd rather put on an old tape of Garner Ted's than listen to a new one uh, coming out because I really don't want to listen to somebody other than Garner Ted. Please don't do that. 
And here's the problem. We've had this problem for the last 19 years, since we started the program of, of sending tapes out, maybe 18 years, whatever it's been. The problem is that a lot of people, if they have to drive 60, 80, 100 miles to get to church, and some of them do, and they get a tape, and they've already heard the tape, and they're going to go to church to hear the very same tape they just listened to on Thursday, then, of course, the host or the local pastors kind of left high and dry because some people will say, well, I'm sorry, they'll call in and say, I've already heard that sermon, I don't want to drive about 60 miles to go hear it again. Well, if that's the only reason you drive those 60 miles, I could see you're making a point. But what about forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together and so much the more as you see the day, as you see the day approaches? And what about simple fellowship with the brethren? And what about the support by your personal presence there of your beloved brothers and sisters who are of like mind? How about all of those things? How about appearing before God in the place where God has hallowed and blessed it and has a group of his people where two or three of you are gathered together? There am I in the midst of you. How about those statements? How about supporting these other men who are fine men and who are working as hard as they can in God's work? I'm just saying that in passing because I see that all the way back in the first century in the writings of the Apostle Paul, of people choosing favorites. And I am very deeply appreciative of people who love, pray for me personally. I don't want to be a favorite. I just want to be one of your brethren and one of those for whom you pray. But I don't need to be a standout or a favorite. Notice who this man was and what his attitude was. Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them. That was one of his own corrupting attitudes. He loved it. He wanted it. He coveted the preeminence. What did Jesus say on the Last Supper when they were squabbling about who was going to be greatest? Here was Christ, so heavy with what he was facing. He knew what he was going to go through, and he needed, if he ever needed any empathy and understanding, it was then. And instead, the disciples right at the Last Supper were arguing and squabbling over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They thought he was going to set it up by some great miracle right very quickly now, and they didn't really understand what was going to come to pass. He said, the Gentiles exercise great authority over their subjects, and they lord it over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever will be the greatest, let him be the servant of all. He talked about taking the least seat. He talked about humility. He talked about giving and helping and serving and sharing. But here was a man who achieved, and the people allowed it, so he somehow influenced it, and the people gave him that. He loves to have the preeminence among them. He receives us, that's John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He receives us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he does, prating against us. Isn't that sickening? There are people all over. And they've done it from time immemorial. They did it in the days, the early days of the split between the Sunnis and the Shiites over the succession. The word caliph merely means a successor, by the way. And the caliphate of Baghdad were the so-called legitimate successors to Mahomet or Muhammad, if you prefer, or Mehmet, which is the Turkish, of the uh, you know founder of the Islamic religion, which didn't really come along into the Middle East until about eight centuries after the time of Christ. Mahomet died in 632. So 
you need to understand that from time immemorial, people have tried to gain control over church congregations by the tactics of attacking, defaming, and destroying the other leader. The way they gather leadership is to destroy the existing leader. And then they think they can pick up the shattered shards and the pieces. You destroy people, and you prove that you're an unprincipled, lying, vicious, attacking, brutal, unforgiving, so on kind of a person who loves to have the preeminence, and you think you're going to have a loyal following. Doesn't work. Just doesn't work. You can't build a wonderful church organization on the broken bodies and the shattered hopes and dreams and the disappointments and the frustrations and the hurt feelings of people. It had better be, just like Gamaliel said, God had better be in it or else it will come to absolutely nothing. And when people are acting in a very ungodly fashion and prating against God's true apostles, as this man was doing, prating against us with malicious words, then nothing is really going to come of it. And not content therewith, neither does he himself receive the brethren. So here was a church that was just split wide open right down the middle. The really true brethren who were with John, who was the disciple whom Jesus loved and obviously were God's people, were not even allowed to fellowship with this group anymore. They were just locked out. He doesn't receive the brethren and forbids them that would and casts them out of the church. So who ended up in possession of the physical property, whatever it was? The bad guy, Diotrephes, who had a love, a lust for power and wanted the preeminence among them. He was a cult leader. You know, God's Word emphasizes the sanctity of life. We, for all of these decades, preach what is called the good news of the coming kingdom of God. The word gospel merely means good news. My dad characterized it as the world tomorrow, the way it's going to be, and portrayed the wondrous blessings of the kingdom of God and the way it's going to be when it governs and rules on this earth and all crime will be put down and out and all disease will be abolished and poverty and squalor and sickness will disappear and people will live long lives. God says to Isaiah that as the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And he wishes long lives. He tells us about the patriarchs. If you look at Exodus 20 and uh, verse 12 at the fifth commandment, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the eternal thy God giveth thee. Maintain the integrity, the love, and the respect of the family. Honor your father and your mother who gave you birth that your days may be long, so you live a long, full life. How can people who know anything at all about the Bible follow some weirdo to, to commit suicide? Suicide is merely self-murder. Homicide is other murder, killing a, a member of the Homo sapien species, another human being, and suicide is murdering yourself. And it is a crime, it is a great crime, one of the worst, bloodiest, most brutal crimes that a human being could ever commit is to murder a fellow human being. And God says, thou shalt not kill. The word is rotsack, which is thou shalt do no murder. So even in the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments, 
the great blessing as a result of honoring your father and your mother is that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The patriarchs that you read of in the pre-flood period lived to great ages. Seth was 912 when he died. He was like 90-some when he had his first child. Uh, well, when he had the first child that was named as one of the patriarchs, Enos was 905. These were gentlemen who lived for 20 generations or more. Can you imagine a family reunion of a group like that? Although it wasn't necessary because nobody moved away very far. They were all right there. But can you imagine a patriarch trying to keep track of all those kids? Eh, who'd you say that youngster, youngster there was? Well, that's, you know, that's your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchild from so-and-so. And he would, he would just be completely confused. Well, if you say so, I guess that's one of mine. Looks a little like me, you know. But can you imagine living for hundreds of years? A lot of prerequisites there. You'd have to have good health. You'd have to have a lot of interests. All those kids would, would be enough. But you'd have to have peace of mind, mental tranquility knowledge of God and God's ways. Over in Genesis 25 and 7, it says, These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, and hundred threescore and fifteen, a hundred and seventy-five. And Abraham didn't have his first child until he was up in his late nineties. Then Abraham gave up the ghost, that's the Hebrew expression for expired, and died in a good old age. That's what God intends an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. A statement of love and great dignity. A great man, the father of the faithful, Abraham, and his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Notice, Ishmael was there. Yeah, well, you thought Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl, got thrown out when he was a boy? Well, she did, but when the angel said, no, you go on back, Abraham took them back, and Sarah had to swallow that. And Ishmael was to become the progenitor of twelve Arab princes. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, which is before Mamre. So they had the same area where Sarah had been buried in the cave that Abraham had bought. And they laid him away as an old man and full of years. In the case of David's death in 1 Kings 2, verses 1 to 4, Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. David wasn't about to ascend to some second level. Uh, he just knew that he was going to die. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. Why? So you'll, you'll be a ritualistic, Christian-looking person? No. That you may prosper in all that you do and whithersoever you turn yourself. Because you see, the way of prosperity, and it's automatic, is the way of God's commandments, His statutes, His judgments, His laws. The way of how to live our lives is the way that produces everything that people really desperately want in this life. That the Eternal may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, If your children take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. And that promise has come true. And the genealogical records of the royal family of Great Britain are traced right back 
through Edward I to King David of the Bible. In Zechariah 8, verses 2 to 5, this is a little portrayal of the way it is going to be in the millennial reign of Christ. At that time, you know that the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation calls Jerusalem today Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. That's in the chapter that talks about the two witnesses who are going to be killed in the streets of that city. It's a city of great contention. It's anything but the city of peace, which is what the name is supposed to mean. Jebus Salim, or Jerusalem, the city of peace, named apparently after the Jebusites. It's a city instead of bloodshed, of suicide bombers, of terrorist attacks, of stabbings, and so on, and of indiscriminate killing today. But this is a portrayal of the way it is going to be. Thus says the Eternal, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Eternal of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Not the kind of a city you imagine with great narrow walls and little old filthy streets and kids with an old tin can or a stick or a hoop or something. No, no, no. This is going to be a city, as it's described in the book of Revelation, of open areas, of a lot of grass and of shrubs and of all kinds of growing things. They will be like unwalled villages where people are on and close to the land. It's not going to be high-rise, squalid old tenements at all, but it does describe the people right out there playing and everybody happy and nobody under any kind of a threat and families to the third and fourth and more generations with their children and great-grandchildren gathered about. I didn't read it when I was over in Third John, but the second verse is when John said to her, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. What is the desire for God toward us during this physical life? The last and the most macabre, grisly, rotten thing in the world is to either be the victim of a murderer or to kill ourselves. To commit that hideous crime against God, against yourself, against all your loved ones and all your friends. As you can say, no matter how depressed, no matter how suicidal some people can become, it is a permanent solution but a temporary problem. Don't ever contemplate it. Satan the devil wants the destruction of the human race. Satan the devil and his demonic spirits want people to kill themselves. Teenage suicide is rife in the United States because of no hope for the future and because of drugs, because people are short-circuiting the neurons in their brains and blowing their minds on every kind of chemical substance you can imagine including spraying a spray can on a light bulb and sticking a sack over their head. They will do anything to get some kind of a chemical agent, even paint, inside their minds. And people are simply spacing out their brains and taking their own lives, and oftentimes is not in a drug overdose. Don't ever remotely contemplate it. If you look at the blessings of Leviticus 26, let's turn to that to conclude here. Leviticus 26 these are the blessings and the cursings that are placed in opposition, as opposed to juxtaposition. If you will walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, 
and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. That's for human physical beings in the family environment to enjoy the wondrous produce, the crops, and the harvest of the land. And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time, and you shall eat your bread to the full. Doesn't mean just bread, but your foodstuffs. And dwell in your land safely. And I will give you peace in the land. What would that mean to the people in Israel today? See, these Israelis are always provoking these Palestinians. They provoke them by opening the other end of a tunnel, which devolves out into the old city, which would lead tourists right out there amidst all the Arab shops where they could buy the trinkets and souvenirs. And that was such a provocation, they rioted and a lot of people died. Now they provoked them by building housing on largely private Jewish land in the sovereign city of Jerusalem where no buildings have ever been before. And in such a provocation, a lot of the people in the American public, because of the leftist liberal media, kind of think, I guess, that the Jews have got no business doing that. That would be like the Indians would come back and say, you don't dare build another skyscraper in Manhattan, wouldn't it? It would be like some terrorist deciding, I'm going to bomb you if you build any more housing apartments somewhere in Washington, D.C. That happens to be the sovereign capital of, of Israel, and it was the only nation and the only people of whom that city has ever been a sovereign political capital. It was never proposed to be a political capital by the Seljuk Turks in the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, nor by the Ottoman Turks in the 14th to the 19th centuries, nor by Transjordan or the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan after the British Mandate of 1922, and following then, of course, the UN Mandate uh, after World War II. These, uh, the Egyptians had the Gaza Strip. They never said Gaza ought to be a separate nation. The Syrians had the Golan Height, and the Syrians never said it ought to be a separate nation. And Jordan had the West Bank and the Old City, and they never said the Palestinians ought to have a state, and Jerusalem ought to be their capital. They were making too much money from tourism, I know because I was one of them, that had to go to Amman and then drive to Jerusalem to the Old City, and then cross no man's land into the New Jerusalem, the Jewish part, carrying your own bags. So... I guess the greatest provocation, really, to Yasser Arafat and some of his people is the fact that the Jews simply exist. Unfortunately, they have a one-way attitude about that as a result of the Holocaust. They just say that, I don't think that we Jews ought to cease to exist, so the world will speak well of us. Hard to understand that attitude. I'm speaking facetiously, of course. He said, You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. And I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. What a promise. You would never have military conscription. You would never have heavy taxation. You would have peace. You wouldn't worry about enemies. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect unto you, and make you fruitful and multiply you, and establish my covenant with you. Quid pro quo. Obey me, which means you obey the laws that are good for you anyhow. And when you do, I will not only give you all these material blessings, but the long-range blessing, of course, is that of eternal life. You shall eat old store and bring forth the old because of the new, and I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people." We are an organization 
who believes that our very most important calling is to communicate over television, we used to over radio, we're not now, the printing press, with our tape programs and every other way that we possibly can, the most priceless truths of Almighty God from the Word of God about the entire purpose for human life, why we're on this earth, why we draw breath, what happens when we die, where we are going, and the rewards of a rich and a long, peaceful, happy human life. Don't ever let anybody tell you that you're the member of a cult. Hang on to your own personal sovereignty. Hang on to your own thought processes. Do not give them into the hands of any leader. Don't choose any favorites. The only favorite you need to choose is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And through him, your Father in heaven above, God our Father. And we're all just his children, and we're all equals, and we all hope to make it into God's kingdom. May God bring that to pass. <laughs>